You're listening to a Burnt Toast production. Jonah Blake is not who he says he is. He stands behind the security guard's chair, staring at a dozen CCTV screens, and only feels tired. The sort of tired he always feels when he's been telling a story all day. He is not a policeman, or rather, he is a policeman to anyone that matters, anyone who needs to see him as Inspector Blake, a tired 30-something detective in charge of some investigation or other. Over years of telling stories, he has learned the trick is to know when to be specific and when to let the reader fill the gaps in themselves. His sergeant is not his sergeant. Her name is Bisme. She has a shaved head, an imperious manner, and dresses with conspicuous flair. People who seek to stand out always make Blake uneasy, running counter to years of training and practice in his craft. He has learned to be beige. She wears a fuchsia shirt and black pinstripe suit, the jacket cut to three-quarter length. She is watching him, still taking the measure of him. She has been watching him all morning, ever since he walked into the building and took control of the investigation. He wasn't sure why he did that. Not yet. He never knows what he is doing until he is doing it. But he can feel it pulling at him. Destiny. The reason he does anything. Everything. He trusts in destiny. He trusts in the table. But this woman doesn't trust him. Does she see through him? Through the story? Or just him? He puts the thought aside. Chances are, she doesn't matter. The security guard loads the footage from the previous evening. At least, he tries to. The screens fill with a jumble of flickering scenes, jumping from day to day, hour to hour, year to year, the same place a hundred different times, happening at once. Blake squints at the timestamps. At least three are from the future. Don't know what the hell happened, the security guard says. Old system went awire. Some kind of virus, maybe? Never seen anything like it. Blake has, but he keeps that to himself, just nods and says, Hmm, thank you very much, and heads for the exit. Bismay follows him. He should have expected that. He has been a policeman before. Inspector Jonah Blake has become a comfortable pair of shoes, a story he knows by heart. His sergeant, as she believes herself to be, has to jog to match his stride. Sir? Bismay, isn't it? Shouldn't we ask for a copy of the footage? One of the cameras might have captured something. I doubt it. I see. Would you care to share the reason for those doubts, sir? Blake stops. They're halfway across the foyer. Another thirty seconds and he might leave his sergeant, and Inspector Blake, behind. Drop this story and see where another takes him. Not particularly, no. I see. And that young woman before? The one you took into the station recovered? Ah. Now s- slow down there. Maybe you could share your reasons for not taking your statement? She did barge straight into our crime scene. Wrong place, wrong time, no need for a statement. I see. Bismay keeps saying that, in a way that worries Blake. Can I ask you something, sir? I haven't been able to stop you. Are you a spook? Blake's frown pinches. He's been called worse, but that's not what worries him. In what sense? That trick with the CCTV? That's proper villainy. Not your burglary or common or garden murder. We're talking organised crime at the very least. Foreign actor, maybe. And that explains you and the girl in the stationery cupboard. 
Does it? Well, if you're not here to investigate, but to tidy things up. Ah, you think I'm a spy. Blake relaxes. You think I'm covering something up. Not a bad story. He'll keep that in his pocket for next time. You're not from our station, and I asked around. You're not a special branch either. You asked around? Don't chide me for doing my job, sir. This is still a murder investigation. Probably. We're still working out if one foot actually counts as a body. You know which station I'm from, Blake says. Do I? Of course you do. Bismi blinks twice, puts her fingers to her head to steady it. Oh yes, of course I do. And Blake feels tired again. He turns back towards the exit. Bismi touches his elbow. And I was assigned to assist you. Were you? Blake doesn't remember that part of the story. You're not unhappy about that, sir? No, I just hadn't been informed. Because I thought you might like me to tell you to see the train. The train? You haven't heard? TFL logged it a few hours ago. Abandoned just short of Westminster. Nobody on board. They're still checking, but can't find a driver rostered for it. Now, it could be kids joyriding. Pretty spectacular effort, but not impossible. There was that 15-year-old who made it 20 miles with an intercity express just last year. Only... Bismay tilts her head back towards the stairs. Only? Well, all this. A dead politician, probably. A state-of-the-art security system that somehow missed the crucial moment when he was detached from his foot. Like I said, not common or garden. Blake glances at the exit, frowns, looks at his sergeant. She has a seriousness that appeals to him. Not enough people are serious. Take me to see the train, he says. Everything Bismay has said is true. TFL, Transport for London, shows the two of them down onto the line after assuring them the power is still off and they flash their torches about the empty carriages. Blake climbs aboard. He isn't sure what he is looking for, but the wrongness is everywhere. He can feel it, pushing him away. It knows what he is. From its safe distance, the sword sings to him. Yes, this, this. He runs his fingertips along the tops of the seats, along the carpet. Dust, fine as ground ash. Something has happened here. Is this where it starts? Jumping down from the train, his torch beam rips graffiti from the darkness, red paint on the brickwork. The fallen are the virtuous among you. They got the line wrong, Bismay says. It should be us, not you. Should it? It's from that new song, Franz Ferdinand. Ah, oh, yes, I remember them. Remember them, sir? Sorry, you said new song. I think it's older than that. Biblical. Take your word for it, sir. I never paid attention in church. I prefer things that are true. Bismi's radio barks. She steps away for a minute. CCTV is ready when we are. Here he is again, not a policeman, staring at screens. This time, at least, the pictures are steady. There's no footage from the train itself. The tapes are not wiped, but instead seem to have recorded nothing, as if they were looking the other way for an hour or two. The footage from the station is more helpful. While the morning crowd waits for a train that isn't coming, two figures stumble out of the tunnel and climb up onto the platform. Bismay steps forward, hits pause without asking which is the right button. That's her. It's her, isn't it? Blake nods. The young woman with the missing boyfriend. Her duffel coat, grubby with soot, 
her stockings torn. She looks terrified. What was her name? Theodora? Theodora Jones? This puts her in the vicinity of the murder within half an hour of T.O.D. Who's that with her? Blake doesn't have to look. The young man in the ridiculous coat. So young. So ridiculous. Is Blake pleased? Angry? He certainly isn't surprised. The sword sings. This! This! This is what I'm here for, he thinks. This is where it all goes wrong. Outside in the rain, two invisible men nod in time. The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk Book One, How to Disappear Completely Written and performed by Mike Barber Episode 5 You didn't want me to come, did you? They'd been in London three weeks, almost a month, and they were lying in the dark, the bedroom windows fixed in amber. London was never dark enough or quiet enough for Josh, not in those early days. At 3am he was jumping down off the mattress to glare out at some drunken bastard on the street. He stirred at every train, every siren, every horn. That night they were on their backs, listening to an argument floating up and down the street outside, with the dreamlike focus of children being read a bedtime story. When Josh spoke, Theo flinched. I don't remember either of us coming tonight, she said. Ouch. Clumsy. She was still drunk. Her cologne was beer, cigarettes, and dry-roasted peanuts. God, she loved dry-roasted peanuts. They were worth the plane fare alone. All she wanted tonight was a smile, a chuckle, and an easy sleep. She was still in the honeymoon when the hardships of London seemed an exotic novelty. Without plans, anything by way of a realistic goal, she was enjoying the chaos. She didn't want to know if Josh wasn't. I just realised tonight, Josh said. You never asked me to come. I just assumed. Theo measured her honesty against her tiredness. Didn't you want to come? I didn't think about it. You said you were buying a ticket. If you were going, I was going. Theo turned her face into her pillow. She realised she'd come to count on Josh's emotional constipation. It was easier to imagine him as a boy without feelings when he never brought them up. She could imagine his silence as accord rather than acquiescence. They were equals. But maybe she had always known she was the difficult one. His was the patience and the devotion. Hers the whim and the thoughtlessness. Exposed, his weakness painted an unpretty picture of her. I didn't make you come, she said, realising in that moment that she did. She just didn't have to try. She also realised she'd always known that. What would happen if I bought a ticket home? Tomorrow? What if I told you that I had? I'd come with you to the airport? She said it lightly, on the edge of irony. The joke was in the ear of the beholder. You wouldn't even think about it, would you? She wanted to say she would talk him out of it. She would argue, but she didn't know if that was true and couldn't count on being convincing. You know I'd miss you. Do I? I think you'd just let me disappear. I wouldn't. He breathed hard once. Was that a laugh or relief? In the dark, she couldn't tell. I can't go back, she said. 
Why not? You could finish uni. Come back here when you're ready. I am ready. Ready for what, Theo? You don't even know what you want to do. It's just dumb pride. No, it's not. I can see the person I want to be, the person I need to be. I just need to work out how it's done, that's all. And what if you can't work it out? Oh, shut up. I'm tired and I'm drunk. If you want a meeting, talk to my people in the morning. She rolled over, hard, taking most of the duvet with her. The other argument came back up the street in a different language. This city, never still, promising everything. I'm ready for anything, Theo said as it passed. That's why I'm here. For anything. Even if I'm not. It wasn't a question. I wouldn't let you disappear. He didn't believe her. Back then, neither did she. The Albion is a short walk from Camden Down Tube, standing whitewashed and proud on the corner of a polished row of Victorian terraces. Theo peers through double-glazed bay windows at lives that seem as fictional as her teenage rock star dreams. Expensive minimalism, framed prints, leather and chrome. She wonders again about a shortcut, about the right door that will take her from the pavement to that living room, from tourism to citizenship. Like too many other London pubs, the Albion has been gutted. It's a hollow thing, its ancient walls little more than kooky veneer for a soulless, minimalist interior. Where there was once warmth, there is now aloof huddles of designer furniture, a sobriquet that, as far as Theo sees it, raises two questions. What sod designed it, and for what purpose, given no bugger would volunteer to sit on it? There are flat screens in every corner, indiscreetly offering sport, soap operas, or music videos. It's early, but the place still feels emptier than necessary. An old bloke in a flat cap sits alone at a spindly table, glancing around every now and then as if trying to remember where he is. Nearby, three young bearded blokes furiously text over espresso martinis. As Theo approaches, the landlady puts down a rag, straightens her shoulders, and smiles like she has borrowed someone's better teeth. Her name badge announces her as Carol Wilson, general manager. She is 48 and South African. Her foundation cracks under the stress of her enduring smile. She asks Theo if she knows about the pub's new range of craft beer, but her bright tone dims on sight of the card in Theo's right hand. Oh, not again. It's not even funny. This is the right address, isn't it? Theo holds up the card. The landlady makes a point of not looking at it. I'm going to get a poster made. You're the third one this week. It's been going on for months. Does it seem funny to you? Theo has to admit she is yet to see the joke. So you don't know anything about the people on this card? The boy gave it to you. Asian boy, right? Funny hat? That's what everyone says. Is it some internet thing? If I find out it's an internet thing, I'm going to be seriously pissed off. Theo says she is confident it's not an internet thing, although that is as good an explanation as any other. She eyes the beards and their martinis, wondering about hidden cameras and viral marketing. But she has to return to her initial diagnosis. Someone is playing a long, cruel joke. How or why it is connected to Josh's disappearance or his boss's murder remains unclear, but maybe that is the point. She is supposed to be confused. Nothing is intended to make sense. Detectives, thieves, time travellers, nonsense. Has to be. There is no better explanation. The landlady seems to think the least Theo can do is buy a bottled beer, but her wallet is even emptier than it looks. 
Instead, Theo wrestles a weak, wristed sort of guilt back to the front door and considers her options. Turning from the station, Theo stops. It has taken her the best part of the afternoon to get this far. She's almost knackered her already poorly oyster card. More than that, she has nowhere else to go. All that awaits her at home is yesterday's laundry and an iPod's worth of maudlin indie. She takes the business card from her satchel and checks the details again. She is in the right place. This is her last link to Josh. A bus passes, its windows already lit, but the only other witnesses are a triumvirate of teenage girls at the bus stop across the road. There's something odd about the way they're sharing a cigarette. Oi! Across the road, the tallest of the girls is gesturing with a minimalist twist of her head. Her dreadlocks rattle against the bus stop glass. Any other day, Theo would keep walking, but it occurs that maybe the address isn't about the pub, but this corner, a meeting place. The three girls stare with practised aggression as she crosses the road towards them. They wait for Theo to speak first. Sorry, Theo says. I thought you were talking to me. Know what you're looking for, don't we? says the tallest of the girls. Clearly, she's the group's spokesperson. The three of them are in school uniform, more or less, but each of the uniforms is different, which is odd, as each of them is from the same school. Only the tailoring is different. The skirts ranging from ankle length to miniskirt, the blazers single and double-breasted, the ties more or less formal, the shoes, sandals, boots and trainers. Theo wonders if the uniforms have been stolen from a museum, from a display of outfits past and present. Is that what the kids are into these days? At 22, she feels older than seems fair. Worrying that she has stumbled on a drug deal, Theo takes the card from her pocket and holds it out. Do you know what this is? Busy taking the cigarette back, the tallest girl doesn't look. She polishes the blue Peter badge on her lapel. Course I do. Course she does, says the girl on her right. Theo is going to say more, but is distracted by the cigarette. More accurately, she is distracted by the way the girl smokes it. She draws deeply on the butt, smeared with pink lipstick, and exhales a small hurricane of blue smoke in Theo's direction. This done, she inhales the smoke again, and, as far as Theo can tell, blows it back into the cigarette, before passing it to her left. That's a neat trick, Theo says. I can't even do rings. The girl isn't interested in praise. What you got? Theo shows her the card again, but the girl isn't interested in that either. Got any cigs? Oh, um, a couple of silk cut? We'll take them. What else? More, says the girl on the right. The girl on the left is busy blowing perfect smoke rings. A small convoy of them expands from her popping goldfish lips, only to contract and return a few seconds later. Um, Theo wonders if she has walked to her own mugging. I should say now that I have no money... And my phone is old. Seriously old. Pretty much obsolete. Don't want your phone, the girl says. Her chorus snorts. No phone! Oh, okay, well, that's promising. Uh, Sorry, I'm not really sure what we're talking about. Do you want in or not? In to your gang? The girl clicks with impatience at the card in Theo's hand. Theo inclines her head back across the road. The woman there said I was in the wrong place. Right place, wrong time. Not now, says the chorus. You're saying I need to wait? In the pub? These these people, Salmon and Dusk, will be there later. Not later, the chorus sniggers. Later? As if? Theo bites down on her impatience. Salmon and Dusk, do you know who they are? 
The tall girl's eyes flick up at her for the first time. You want to see him? I don't know. Maybe? It's my boyfriend I'm looking for. The boy who gave me this said he could help me find him. Keeping her bored gaze fixed on Theo's, the girl takes the cigarette, inhales and exhales and inhales again. The cigarette is undiminished. A few glittering embers lift from the girl's stockings to return to its tip. Kiss your hand, she says. Why? Ain't gonna hurt you, I just need to see. See what, exactly? What you got on offer? Before Theo can make sense of this, the girl leans forward, snatches her wrist, and draws it in so hard that it is all Theo can do not to topple over. The girl stares for a few seconds at the back of Theo's closed fist, before looking up with an ancient sort of tiredness. Can't read your palm if I can't see it, can I? Oh, right. Sorry. Annoyed at herself for apologising, Theo turns and opens her palm regardless. The girl leans over and spits into it. Disgusted, Theo tries to pull her hand clear, but the girl has a grip of iron. Weirder than that, her spit is black as squid ink, pooling on Theo's palm before spreading out to map love lines, lifelines, and tributaries. The girl takes it all in with the kind of enthusiasm she might have had for flossing her teeth. Hmm, bad week for you. Well, it's not exactly news to me. I'm talking next week, real stinker. Great, thanks. Aren't you supposed to flatter me? I I'm not sure I want to pay for bad news. The girl sniffs. I'll take you 20. Deal? What 20? Gutter. Camden High Street, next Tuesday. Deal or no deal? I really don't understand what you're asking for. A moment of your time. We've got a deal or not? Theo glances across the street to the sterile face of the pub. It has started to rain. There seems little immediate danger of the day getting any worse. Yeah, sure. Why not? The girl reaches into her blazer and pulls out what looks like a wad of lottery tickets. Still gripping Theo's wrist, the girl flips the book open and presses Theo's thumb down on the first available ticket. Theo is about to object when a cold judder runs through her, like the reminder of a lurking disappointment, something she's been trying not to think about. She sees a £20 note dropped in the gutter, shivering in the wake of a lorry as she bends down to snatch it. As she reaches for it, the note vanishes. The lorry too. She is on the other side of the road, watching the girl, this girl with a squid ink spit, stand up and pocket the note. And now she is only where she is. Snatching back her hand, she sways where she stands, abandoned by a train of thought. The girl studies the ticket. A clear, inky imprint of Theo's thumb marks the paper. What just happened? You gave me a bit of your future. Ta! Theo blinks. Say that again. It's there. The girl says. Theo looks at her palm. She looks at her thumb. What's where? The Albion. Just behind you. Turning, Theo sees the girl is right. The pub is there, except it isn't the same pub. Except it is. The facade has been stripped of its whitewash and the windows are frosted yellow. The tiles and brickwork are cracked and grimy. It looks older, but Theo somehow knows the reverse is true. This is how the pub looked before. The stylish lettering is gone, replaced by a crooked sign slung above the door. The door is no longer glass, but dark wood. It flies open as a bouncer boots a red-faced old bloke out onto the pavement. Dressed in an undertaker's top hat and morning coat, the man spins and swaggers, considers attempting re-entry, but thinks better of it. Tripping away, he mutters to himself, 
rewriting the past minute, rehearsing new crimes and heroism that might earn him drinks in the nights ahead. Theo looks at her palm. The ink. There was something in the ink. Absorbed through the skin? What have you done to me? The girl sniffs. Easy getting on a manor as long as you've been there already. If you ain't, you need someone to show you. It takes Theo a few seconds to pass that. What did you show me, exactly? What you asked for? You want Nero. He's all right. It's his lordship you want to watch out for. Smooth bastard. Lordship. Theo wonders if there is a condition where your own language no longer makes sense to you. She has read of coma victims waking up with a spontaneous gift for Mandarin. Right now, she feels she would do better translating that. She doesn't look away from the pub, gripped by the irrational thought that doing so will lead it to disappear. It's the physical equivalent of one of those old magic eye pictures, only apparent from a certain angle, easier to lose than it would be to find again. Paying scant attention to the evening traffic, she starts back across the road. Hey! The girl is beside her, hand out. Silk cut! All right. Yes, Theo fishes the pack from her duffel coat. She realises it has stopped raining, and yet it is still raining at the bus stop. Between there and here, the air is alive with a small and hastily assembled constellation of insects, moths and gnats and butterflies arranging themselves in a loose arc. With a jolt, Theo realises this arc, which she has just passed beneath, marks the line between the rain and the dry. She looks at the pack in her hand. Actually, could I keep a couple for myself? I think I might need them. The girl shrugs. Didn't write nothing in concrete, did we? You've been listening to The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk. Book One, How to Disappear Completely. Written and read by Mike Bartlett. been listening to a Burnt Toast production.